Welcome back to the Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is the series that investigates commercial aviation accidents that have a direct bearing on improved safety in the industry. And this episode explores an accident at a time of COVID-19, which may be too recent to have a direct effect on civil aviation safety, and yet the causes appear to be directly linked to what is known as cockpit resource management, otherwise known as crew resource management, or CRM. A lack of CRM has unfortunately caused many an accident. So the Pakistan crash, which took place in May 2020 in Karachi, is also a warning about how airlines go about restarting their services after a lengthy shutdown. Flying is not like riding a bicycle. It has also led to immediate suspension of Pakistan International Airlines landing rights in the EU after shocking details emerged about systematic airline transport pilot license exam cheating, along with other cases of corruption. So the main point is that an Airbus A320 crashed into a heavily populated suburban area of Karachi in Pakistan on May 22, 2020. Flight 8303 was a scheduled domestic flight from Alama Iqbal International Airport in Lahore to Jinnah International Airport in Karachi. The plane went down in a residential area near the airport a few days after Pakistan lifted restrictions imposed over the coronavirus pandemic and resumed domestic flights ahead of the major Muslim holiday of Eid al-Fitr. Amazingly, two on board survived, both in business class, while at least one person on the ground died, a 13-year-old girl. As I said, crew resource management failures appear to be behind this crash, at least from the initial reports published in Pakistan. Years ago, when I was learning to fly, one of my instructors used to chatter to me during important phases of flight, and I had to say, Sorry, Russell, I need to report our position or reset instruments, and he would smile in a knowing way. Cockpit resource management includes knowing when it's time to shut up or shut your fellow pilot up and concentrate 100% on the job at hand. Landing an aircraft is one of those crucial moments. So Russell tested me by chattering away. Would I be passive and listen to his patter as we sped into the distant blue yonder, or would I have the nerve to cut him off in order to report positions to ATC and change instruments. As you can well imagine, culture gets in the way of this process. I mentioned local cultural issues in the last podcast, where the junior pilot defers to the senior pilot even when it's dangerous. In my culture, as a pilot, we're taught to question the decisions made by the senior pilot on board when he or she has made a mistake. But it's difficult, as you can imagine. In my case, for example, Russell had logged 35,000 hours of flying and was flying before I was born, and I'm 58. So when he talks about things, you tend to want to listen. But he also expected me to have enough situational awareness to cut into his commentary while we were flying in the circuit, for example, in order to report our position. Although I was utterly in awe of him and his legacy of skills, I still had to interrupt him to carry out essential functions. It was his way of testing that I was emotionally intelligent enough to be able to interrupt an older, highly experienced pilot when the need arose. In the old school, they used to call situational awareness dog f- Because you're so aware of what's around you, it's nature, not nurture. So when pilots are in awe of other pilots, situational awareness can be negatively affected by the older pilots acting as though it's my way or the highway. Particularly if the highly experienced aviator is also a borderline sociopath or a bully. Women pilots in particular in some parts of the world have struggled to be taken seriously by some of these old-fashioned curmudgeonly aviators who are gruff and arrogant. You can see how culturally this is a big problem in some parts of the world. 
when race, ethnicity, religion are thrown into the mix, well, you can imagine what happens. Some have suggested replacing pilots with computers because of this. It's partly because 80% of commercial aviation accidents are blamed on pilot error that there's a move to replace pilots with automation. At first, that appears fine. Then you remember the MCAS disasters for Boeing MAX 8s. That's the Movement Characteristics Automation System, where pilots were trying to stop the plane's computer from committing suicide. That's where automation went mad. When systems fail, humans back them up, and vice versa. And automation will be no different. Computers don't know how to gauge a problem. They're merely coded to respond to specific situations and inputs. That's one reason why Amazon and Google and others have failed to produce an autonomous vehicle despite spending billions of dollars and going at it for more than a decade. There are just too many parameters of chaos in the real world to rely totally on a machine. At the same time, pilots are type A. We have to be certain about things, yet we cannot be arrogant because that's dangerous. So it's a fine line, isn't it? Back to the Pakistan International Airline crash. It appears the main cause was a clear case of pilot error combined with poor CRM taking place at the worst possible time, landing a commercial airliner. So this is what we know so far. It emerged after the crash of PIA Flight 8303 that around 40% of the pilots in Pakistan have fake flying licenses. At least, that was according to a statement made by Aviation Minister Gulam Sarwa following the accident in May 2020. To Pakistan Aviation Authority's credit, They've done a mea culpa immediately, which of course facilitates fixing a problem. So the accident I'm going to describe was buried beneath the mountain of news about COVID-19 in May. But the facts are extraordinary. They're so extraordinary, I had to check and double-check the information. It's so outrageous. For one, the pilots attempted to land the plane despite it thundering over the runway threshold at 210 knots. The recommended landing speed of the Airbus A320 is 140. Then there's the jaw-dropping fact that the pilots retracted the undercarriage at some stage while descending to land. And actually they did a belly landing and were blissfully unaware the undercarriage had been retracted. That's a shocker. That's in addition to the pilots appearing to be quite happy to try landing the plane descending at twice the normal rate, let alone far above a safe landing speed. This is one of those accidents where three things came together simultaneously. If one of the three had been absent, there may be more people alive today. It gets even worse if you believe Pakistan aviation authorities who have heard the cockpit voice recorder. The two pilots who perished in the accident were nattering away about COVID-19 as they set up the plane for landing, breaking the basic CRM rule when the aircraft has entered the most dangerous part of the flight. You have to shut up and concentrate. Pakistan had been in a countrywide lockdown like many around the world since mid-March because of the coronavirus and when flights resumed in May 2020, every other seat on the aircraft was left vacant to improve social distancing. So the pilot was Captain Sajid Gul, had more than 18,000 hours flying, and was assisted by First Officer Usman Azam. The flight departed from Lahore at 5 past 1. This is where the information we have is crucial. Firstly, images show the aircraft approaching runway 25 left according to the 14-page preliminary report released on 24th of June. Extracts from the cockpit voice recorder show that both pilots were still preoccupied in non-operational conversations about the COVID-19 pandemic. This led to a series of incorrect altitudes and flight speeds for that sector of the flight. 
For example, the aircraft was at an altitude of 9,800 feet at the navigation waypoint Makli, whereas it was supposed to be at 3,000 feet. The pilots then disengaged the autopilot and switched to something called open descent mode, where the Airbus would automatically capture the instrument landing system glide path. It's called the ILS. All this did was put the Airbus into a 7,000 feet per minute dive, which is way over the acceptable approach angle, and the airspeed would have been almost impossible to manage. Then the report shows the landing gear was extended at around 7,200 feet, while the aircraft was 10 nautical miles away from Karachi Airport. Then, five nautical miles from the runway, the landing gear was inexplicably retracted. And shockingly, that's the configuration the Airbus A320 registered all the way onto the first landing attempt at runway 25 left. The air traffic controller seems to understand that the Airbus is not properly set up to attempt the landing. His voice in this recording is indistinct, but he's clearly warning the pilots that the plane is too high and too fast. According to the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, multiple alerts began sounding, including overspeed and gear unsafe warnings. Then the ground proximity warning system also sounded, yet both pilots appeared to ignore these alarms or fail to hear them, which is unlikely. According to Pakistan aviation authorities, they're still trying to figure out why the flight crew ignored these warnings. We have airport CCTV that shows the Airbus touching down on the runway on its engines, sparks flying from the friction with the tar at an extremely high speed. One of the pilots then tells ATC that they're going around, but fails to mention anything regarding the landing with the wheels up, which they must have known by that point. 303 going around. 3 is report reaching altitude 3,500 feet. Friction marks on the runway photographed later showed there'd been some ground contact at the runway's 1,400 meter mark. That's way down the runway. And that's where the plane's left engine is believed to have scraped, while at the 1,700 meter mark, the right engine made contact. So the pilots began turning to the left after taking off again, with a view to heading back to runway 25 left. Here's some audio. Four, the ATC now clears the Airbus to climb to 3,000 feet. But both engines were seriously damaged as they hit the tarmac, and after the Airbus began to turn back and begin the landing run for 25 left for a second attempt, they were what's known as left downwind. Both engines failed within moments of each other. So, with the engines failed, the aircraft could not maintain altitude. The pilots were aware of this, and Pakistan sources say the backup ram air turbine, or RAT, was deployed at that time. We are proceeding back, sir. We have lost engines. Confirm you are carrying out valley engine. Runway available to land at 2.5. This is a small turbine that supplies power to the plane's control surfaces when the engines fail and the auxiliary power unit is not running. The pilot then declares an emergency, which is the last broadcast from the plane. So let's go over the issues at this point. First, the pilot ignored warnings about the plane's height and speed as it approached the runway. 
At 15 nautical miles from Karachi, it was at 10,000 feet instead of 7,000 feet. Despite the ATC's interjection, the pilot remained adamant that the descent profile was fine. Then, 10 nautical miles out, the ATC instructed the pilot to hasten descent. Still, the pilot refused and said the plane was set for landing. This from a man with 18,000 hours of flying time. Horrifying, really, in what appears to be either rash arrogance or stupidity, or both. Later, Pakistan International Airlines CEO Arshad Malik said a technical fault prompted the pilot to make a go-around rather than land, even though both runways were available to him. A technical go-around? It's called a wheels-up landing. It's a crash. Eventually, the plane ran out of lift on left downwind and plowed into a high-density residential area, but the casualty figure was not as high as it could have been in the worst-case scenario. Afterwards, investigators revealed that, as I said, hundreds of Pakistani ATPL and COM pilots have fake licenses. The government grounded 262 airline pilots suspected of dodging their exams following inquiries into their qualifications. There has been rampant corruption and collusion between pilots and local civil aviation officials in Pakistan, picked up by an investigation in 2018. What had been going on was pilots were paying others to write their exams, or in some cases bribing officials to pass them when they'd failed. The 262 pilots grounded pending the conclusion of inquiries against them included 141 from Pakistan International Airlines, 9 from Airblue, 10 from Serene Airline, and 17 from Shaheen Airlines, which has subsequently shut down. So these investigations started, as I said, in 2018, after a crash landing in that year, which then revealed the test date on the license of the pilot meant he could not have written the exam as he'd been on holiday out of the country at the time someone else took his test. Five top civil aviation officials have been suspended, and prosecutions are now being considered against them and their... uh, AIDS. The wheels of justice appear to turn exceedingly slowly in Pakistan, and we await the final report. So, when did crew resource management start as a thing? Well, the first person to talk about human interaction on the flight deck was a BOAC captain called David Beatty, who was a former Royal Air Force pilot, and he wrote a book called The Human Factor in Aircraft Accidents, and that was in the late 1950s. It then became part of United Airlines' pilot training handbook following the crash of a DC-8 in 1978 and eventually was recommended for all pilots by the National Transportation Safety Board. That was after the United Airlines Flight 173 that crashed in Portland, Oregon in December 1978. That was a scheduled flight from John F. Kennedy Airport in New York to Portland International with a scheduled stop in Denver, Colorado. It was piloted by Melbourne Buddy McBroom and First Officer Roderick Rod Beebe And in those days, the planes also had a flight engineer who was Forrest Frosty Mendenhall. McBroom had been with United Airlines for 27 years and was one of the airline's most senior pilots with more than 27,600 hours of flight time and 5,500 hours as a DC-8 captain. Beeb had been with the airline for 13 years and had logged more than 5,200 flight hours, while Mendenhall had close to 3,900 flight hours and had been with the airline for 11 years. As the landing gear was being lowered on approach to Portland International Airport in 1978, the crew felt an abnormal vibration and the aircraft yawed while the landing gear indicator light remained off. Something was wrong. The crew then requested a holding pattern to diagnose the problem and for approximately an hour, the DC-8 flew over southeast Portland 
while the pilots try to work out the status of the landing gear and prepare for a potential emergency landing. This is where things start going wrong. During this time, none of the three cockpit flight crew monitored the fuel levels properly, which was exacerbated by the fact that the gear was down with the flaps at 15 degrees during the entire hour-long holding maneuver, and that of course significantly increases drag and therefore fuel use. As the crew prepared for a final approach for an emergency landing on runway 28 left, they lost the number one and number two engines to flame out, at which point a mayday was declared. Here's the original recording. So that was the last radio transmission from Flight 173 to air traffic control. It crashed into a wooded section of a populated area of suburban Portland, about six nautical miles southeast of the airport. Mendenhall and flight attendant Joan Wheeler were killed, along with eight passengers. Twenty-one had serious injuries, and both pilots survived. It was all down to poor crew or cockpit resource management, CRM. The term cockpit resource management, later generalized to crew resource management, was coined in 1979 by NASA psychologist John Lauber, who had studied communication processes in cockpits for several years. While retaining a command hierarchy, the concept was intended to foster a less authoritarian cockpit culture, where co-pilots are encouraged to question captains if they observe them making mistakes. And you can see where local culture will have a significant and negative effect on this concept. By the 1990s, CRM had become a global standard in aviation. Some of the older pilots I know scoffed at this, but that was because of their own macho inhibitions rather than emotional intelligence. The idea is that both flight attendants and crew working together improves communication while solving problems efficiently as long as there is general good faith. This is where humans fail, of course. The theory and the practice are two different things. When the captain is not affected by cultural or other deficiencies which preclude younger men or women from questioning decisions by their elders, it goes well. So the CRM principles are now used in a wide range of activities where people must make dangerous time-critical decisions. These include air traffic control, ship handling, firefighting, and medical operating rooms. So CRM training is based on managing behavior such as poor crew coordination, loss of situational awareness, and judgment errors frequently observed in aviation accidents. So by the way, an almost identical situation to Flight 173 took place all the way back in 1963 when Aeroflot TU-124 ditched into the Neva River due to fuel exhaustion after circling for two hours in the vicinity of Pulkovo Airport while the crew tried to troubleshoot landing gear problems. Fortunately, everyone on board survived that accident. Then, on January 13, 1969, Scandinavian Airlines System Flight 933, which was also a DC-8, crashed into the ocean during an approach to Los Angeles International Airport. Of the 45 passengers and crew, 15 died. In that case, the green light for the nose gear failed to illuminate after the landing gear was lowered. The SAS cockpit crew became so preoccupied with attempting to diagnose the lack of a nose gear green light that they allowed their rate of descent to increase until their DC-8 plowed into the ocean well short of the runway. That wasn't all. There was another, Eastern Airlines Flight 401, which crashed while in a holding pattern in the Everglades, west of the Miami International Airport in Florida on December 29, 1972. There, the pilots and the flight engineer, two of the 10 flight attendants and 96 of the 163 passengers died, 
75 passengers and the rest of the crew survived. What happened was the Eastern Airlines pilots had become, yes, preoccupied with the nose gear indicator light and accidentally disconnected the autopilot, causing the aircraft to make a slow descent and eventually crash into the swamp. It was night and the incremental descent was impossible to gauge, according to investigators. Isn't it incredible how often this happened in aviation, before the CRM training was instituted to improve responses to situations? So over time, many people have lost their lives as situational awareness diminished and air crew obsessed over some technical issue. That has been reduced with new safety initiatives. We'll investigate another of these examples next episode. That's the Tenerife disaster. That's part two of our CRM series. So until then, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye.